Would you please open your Bibles with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verses 15 through 22. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. A will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. My Father, I thank you for the great mysteries of the gospel that you will unveil before us today. And I pray in the mighty name of Jesus that you would drive these things deeply into our hearts and cause us to understand more of who you are and how you have worked in history. I pray that you would increase our sense of hope in you and increase our sense of joy in you. Father, teach us now to fix our eyes upon Christ, who indeed is all in all. I thank you, Father, for what you'll do. In your mighty name I pray, amen. Yesterday as I was uh, thinking and praying about how to start the message this morning, I drew to mind uh, Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 10, and I just couldn't get these words out of my mind, so I want to read them to you and tell you why I wanted to begin with this. Paul wrote, but as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the deep things of God. And so as I prayed about preaching Hebrews 9, 15 through 22, these words came to mind because this text reveals to us some of the very deep things of God. There are mighty mysteries here. The author's summing up things that he's been building from chapter one up to this point, and it's kind of a high point. It's kind of a crescendo. He takes us to the top of the mountain, and he helps us to see something of the glory of Christ. And then we'll see in the next chapter or two, as we keep progressing, it's not the highest peak. There are still higher peaks, but right now there's a vista that he wants us to see. And I pray with all of my heart that God will open up our eyes to these things because they will increase our joy, they will increase our understanding, and help us with a thousand different circumstances and decisions if we'll let the Lord speak into our lives. And so today I'm going to say almost nothing about how this text relates to the ebb and flow of our daily lives. Instead, I'm going to trust the Lord for that. What I want to do is try to guide us into the depths of the truths that are in this text 
And I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit will help you to see how this applies to your daily life. He has the ability to do that, and I trust that he will do that. So my passion for the message this morning is that we would grow in our understanding of the contours of what Christ has done for us so that we would grow in the joy that we have in what Christ has done for us. The more we understand what he has done, the greater our hope gets, the greater our joy gets. That's the aim for the message today. And so with that, would you please look with me again at verse 15. I want to read just that one verse again. There the author writes, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, that is Jesus, so that those who are called may receive the the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So as I said, this one verse sums up several vital things that the author has been systematically putting on the table from chapter one until now. And to be more specific, he mentions four things. He mentions the covenant. He mentions that Christ is the mediator of that covenant. He mentions the sacrifice that Christ made as the mediator. And he mentions the inheritance that those who believe will receive. So four things. The covenant, the mediator, the sacrifice, and the inheritance. And what I want to do today is just walk you through each one of these pieces and hopefully open to all of us the glories of God that are here. So let's uh, begin by talking about the covenant. And if you'll just flip back to chapter 8 and look at verses 8 through 12. I don't want to read those verses to you, but I want to draw your attention there because that's where the author quotes from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. He quotes the whole text verbatim. And the reason he does that is because that text is the legal language of the second covenant. This is the, this is the language that God has obliged himself to for all of eternity. And that language can be summed up in the words... I will do it, declares the Lord. I'm going to do it. Under the first covenant, God had spoken very clearly to his people and given them a whole number of commandments. All of those, I think there's 613 commandments in the old law. They're all summed up by 10 commandments, and we know that. And when the people heard the words of the Lord, they declared not once, not twice, but three times. They said, we will do it. All that the Lord has said, we will do. All that the Lord has said, we will do. But the problem is that the people could not do what the people promised to do, right? Because their flesh was so weakened by sin, there's no way they could even keep their own promises to themselves and to one another, much less keep the sacred covenant of God. It was not possible. And so about six or seven hundred years into that first covenant, God in his grace prophesied through the prophet Jeremiah and also through Ezekiel and some others of a new covenant. And when he made that prophecy, he changed the terms of the covenant. The first terms were, you will do it. You know, the people said to God, we will do what you have commanded us to do. The the new covenant is summed up by the power of the words, I will do it, declares the Lord. What you could not do, weak as you are in your flesh, I will do for you because I love you and I want to be with you forever and ever and ever. In his grace, God promised to do what we could never do. And that is perfectly fulfill his law and then also pay for the penalty of our many transgressions against that law. Now, how did God fulfill his promises? 
Well, he fulfilled that promise by sending Jesus Christ into the world because, and listen to this, Jesus is the I in the words, I will do it, declares the Lord. Jesus is the I in the I will do it, declares the Lord. The Lord uh, Jesus Christ, who is God, came and fulfilled the law on our behalf, perfectly so, from his heart, not just as a, some kind of moral obligation or external duty, but from his heart, he loved his Father with everything in him, and he so fulfilled the law, kept every commandment. Jesus Christ, who is God, offered up the sacrifice of himself to pay the penalty for our sins. Jesus Christ, who is God, called us to himself with such grace and power that once called, he has promised we will belong to him forever and ever. He will do this as well. He will call us to himself. He will keep us in himself. Jesus Christ is the I, and I will do it, declares the Lord. And for this reason, at least a couple times in the Old Testament, the Father actually calls Jesus the covenant I thank you, Matt Ward, for pointing this out to me earlier this week. Keep your finger in Hebrews. Uh, Turn over to Isaiah 42 with me. I want to show you this. Matt pointed this out to me earlier in the week, and I was so blessed, Matt. I went and meditated on those texts after we met on Friday. I was like, wow, just unbelievable, mind-blowing. We're talking about seven, eight hundred years before Christ, all right? So Isaiah chapter 42, in the first few verses, God is prophesying about this servant that will come. And that servant is Jesus Christ. And then when you get to verse 6, Isaiah 42, 6, he says this. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. And you here is referring to Jesus. It's referring to the servant. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and I will keep you. And here it is. I will give you as a covenant for the people. He didn't say, I will give you a covenant that you can deliver to the people. He said, I will give you as a covenant for the people. You will be the covenant, Lord Jesus. You will be a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison of those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name, my glory. I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, behold, the former things have come to pass and new things I now declare. In other words, the first covenant is fading away, and I am now declaring a new covenant. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Wow! Mind-blowing to me. Now flip over to Isaiah 49. He does it again, just in case we missed the point. Isaiah chapter 49, I'm going to start in verse 8. Thus says the Lord, In a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate things, saying to the prisoners, come out to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways. On all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun will strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them. And by springs of water he will guide them. Doesn't that sound like Revelation 20 and 21 to you? We're being promised to come into the fullness of the inheritance in Christ. Beloved, Jesus is our covenant. 
Hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ walked this earth, God made an astonishing promise that in Christ he would be our covenant, that Jesus would be the I, and I will do it, declares the Lord. And because of that, the author then puts a second vital thing on the, on the table. So let's turn back to Hebrews now. Chapter 9, verse 15. He puts a second vital thing on the table. Namely, he says that Jesus is the mediator of this covenant. Now, if you stop to let this sink in, this is really astonishing. It's breathtaking. It's mind-blowing. Jesus is the covenant that he mediates. And Jesus mediates the covenant that he is. He is the covenant and he is the mediator. Now we've talked about before that usually a mediator is a third party who stands in between two parties to help them work something out or reconcile or whatever. In this case, on the one side there is God and on the other side there is human beings and the thing that's dividing them is the depth and seriousness of human sin. It is the persistence and pervasive rebellion that is in the hearts of human beings that causes them to violate their own words over and over and over and over again. As I've said to you before, we will do it always turns into ain't going to happen because we're always breaking our own rules. We're always breaking our vows to God. This situation is very serious and it cannot be mediated by a disinterested third party. The divide between God and man has to be mediated by one who is both God and man. There is no other way. There is not another way. This is why the author, from the first verses of chapter 1, begins to make the argument that Jesus is in fact God. This is not a small thing in the flow of the thought of Hebrews. Go back sometime and read chapter 1 and you'll see he's trying to press as hard as he can to exalt Jesus Christ as divine. He equates Jesus with Yahweh. He says Jesus is God. This is crucially important. And then beginning in chapter 2, He starts to tell us that not only is Jesus God, but Jesus is also a human being who made a choice to partake of flesh because we who needed his mediation are blood and flesh. And in order to redeem us from death, he took on flesh that he might destroy the one who has the power of death and deliver us to eternal life in God. So again, the author begins pressing in chapter 2, Jesus is also man. Jesus is God and Jesus is man. And he develops this and develops this and develops this uh, over the next few chapters of, of, the, of the letter. A few weeks ago, when we were in chapter 7, I said to you repeatedly over a series of weeks that when the mediator is flawed, we cannot get to God. You remember that? When God is on one side and we're on the other and we need this mediator, if there's any problem with that mediator, there is no way for us to get to God. Our sin has caused God to 100% cut off access to him. Period and end of story. We must come through a mediator. And every other mediator was flawed and therefore that's why the blood of bulls and goats could never touch the conscience or never truly reconcile a person to God. When the mediator is flawed, you cannot get to God. Jesus Christ, though, is perfectly righteous. Jesus Christ, though he suffered under the weight of temptation, never sinned, and so he fulfilled the law, and then he became the perfect sacrifice for us, and in this way, he became the perfect mediator for us. Jesus Christ 
became the mediator between God and man as the only one who is both God and man. And since this mediator is not flawed, he has become the only eternal way to God. Period. And end of story. The best news that the world has ever heard. Jesus Christ is the covenant of God and he is the mediator of that covenant. He is the I, and I will do it, declares the Lord, and he is the one who reconciles God and men as one who is God and men. Third vital thing that the author now puts on the table in verse 15 is the sacrifice that Jesus made. The way he puts it in verse 15, he just uses these words, since a death has occurred, but we know from the context that he's talking about the death of Christ because that's what he's just been talking about. And in this death, two specific things happen without which we could not be saved. So this is huge. If Jesus didn't accomplish this, none of us would have any hope in this life. First of all, the death of Jesus Christ inaugurates the second covenant. Look with me at verses 16 to 17. The author writes, For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. And we all know this to be true, just by our own common sense. Both of my parents passed away many years ago. My, my birth father died uh, in 78. My mother died in 94. My stepdad died in 98. They left me nothing because they had nothing to leave. But if they had something to leave, and if they wrote that into, into their will, I would not come into that inheritance until they died, right? Unless somehow there was some legal exception made to the rule, that's the terms of the deal. When you have a last will and testament, it calls for death in order for it to go into effect. And, and so it is with God. God requires the spilling of blood in order for the covenant of redemption to go into effect. Those are his terms. He's the boss, and that's what he has said. And this is not only true of the second covenant, it's also true of the first covenant. Look in verse 18. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. Now, at this point, I love what the author does, because he's a man that's very concerned with grounding his teaching in the Bible. I love this about him. He is an inspired writer, filled with the Holy Spirit, writing the words of God. Whether he was conscious of that or not, he was doing that. And yet he doesn't want the people to just believe what he's saying because he said it. He wants the people to see where he's getting his ideas. He wants the people to know that he's not making this stuff up, but that he's just reading the Old Testament very well. And so in verses 19 and following, he draws their minds back to Exodus 24. Without naming the text, all of his readers in that day would have known exactly what he was talking about. He drew their minds back to the story when the, when the first covenant was inaugurated. He reminded them of that day when God commanded Moses and the key leaders of Israel to draw near to him at the bottom of Mount Sinai. On that day when Moses built an altar and he built 12 pillars and he commanded young men from the tribes of Israel to come and sacrifice sacrifices on those pillars. He reminds them of the day when the Lord proclaimed all the words of his to them, not once but twice, and then the people said, not once but twice, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. On that very day, and in response to their words, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, in response to those words, 
Moses took some of the blood of the sacrifices and he sprinkled it on the people. And when he did that, he said, Behold, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. That's Exodus 24, 8. Those words sound familiar to you, I bet. Though the author doesn't mention this part of the story, I can't help but finish the story out for you. Because after Moses did that, he and the other leaders of Israel came near to the bottom of of Mount Sinai and there they sat down and the Bible says at the end of Exodus 24 that all 75 of them about saw God. The Bible says that all 75 of these men saw the glory of God and they saw the pavement of heaven that was something like sapphire but clear as the sea. And there they ate with him and they drank with him and they communed with him as a way of prophesying a meal that was to come in the future, as a way of prophesying the destiny of all the earth, in fact. And indeed, with perfect knowledge and great intentionality, Jesus Christ drew on these words. On that night when he was betrayed and he took the bread and gave thanks, and then he broke the bread and said, here, take this. And do this in remembrance of me. This is my body broken for you. And then he took the cup of wine and he passed it out to the people. And he said very, very carefully, he said these words. Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. Not the blood of the covenant. This is my blood of the covenant. That's the difference between you will do it and I will do it, declares the Lord This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. I promise you, Jesus knew in great detail exactly what he was doing that night. He knew that in only one or two days hence, he was going to spill his blood, and that spilled blood would dissolve the first covenant and inaugurate the second covenant. He knew that. And so he passes out this wine as a prophecy of things that are immediately to come. And then, of course, at the end of his words, he points way to the future, into the consummation of history, to the day when Jesus will gather with all of his disciples, people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation, and where we will eat with him and drink with him and commune with him together as a people forever and ever and ever and ever. Beloved, these words of Jesus are powerful words and deeply rooted in the words of Moses and the author of Hebrews is fully aware of all this, is trying to tie all this together for us. Now you'll see as the author of Hebrews goes on, Not only did Moses sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the people that day, but then at at a later time when they built the tabernacle and all the vestments and everything, he also sprinkled blood on many other things. In fact, under the first covenant, almost every single thing was purified by blood by the will of God. And why was that? Because the blood of the sacrifice not only inaugurates the second covenant, but now the second thing it does is that the blood of the sacrifice forgives sins. It redeems transgressions. Now when we get to chapter 10, which will happen in two weeks, Lord willing, we will talk about why God requires the shedding of blood in order to forgive sins. It's a question I really want to answer. We shouldn't take for granted that God requires death in order to give life. We'll talk about why at that time. At this time, though, what I want us to see is that God absolutely requires the shedding of blood in order to forgive sins. There are no exceptions to this rule. 
in verse 15, he says that the death of Christ was to redeem us from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. And the implication is that if he didn't die, we would not be forgiven. And then please look at the end of verse 22. This is an extremely important clause. The very last words of verse 22. Jason, I really appreciated you reading that so carefully when you got there because this is hugely important. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Period and end of story. Now look in the beginning of verse 22. You see where it says uh, that, that almost everything was purified by blood. Are you seeing that there? I know some of you have different translations, but I, you probably see something like that. Well, there are people in our day, prominent people in the evangelical world who are writing books and writing blogs and DVDs, MP3s, all this stuff, and arguing pretty fiercely that blood is not actually required for the forgiveness of sins in all cases. And this is a serious error, a very serious error, and so I want to just take a second to address it. Because it does turn out that in the Old Testament there are a handful of cases, like about five cases, where other things are accepted by God for the redemption of sins, things other than blood. Without going into all the details, which if you're interested in this, I can send you the details of my my notes on this. But when you look at all of those several exceptions, what you see is that every one of them is still yet tied into the sacrifice of blood. So let me just give you one example. There is one case in which if a person can't afford a lamb, then they're to offer pigeons for their sin. And if they can't afford the pigeons, if they're so poor that they can't even buy a couple of birds, then they're allowed to give a cereal cake, basically, as an offering for their sin. But you can see that this is just out of compassion for their poverty. This is not God making an exception to the rule. He's still requiring blood for the sacrifice. And every one of the so-called exceptions to the rule, when you go look at them, you see that they don't break the rule. Now, I want to actually have you turn to this place, so keep your finger in Hebrews and turn to Leviticus 17 with me. The verse I'm going to read is very important, and when you go back to Hebrews, you might want to write in your margin by uh, 922, you might want to write Leviticus 17.11 because this is a very, very important verse. This is the rule that is clearly stated for both covenants. Leviticus 17, verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. I don't know how much more clear you can get than that. It is blood that makes atonement by the life. This is the central declaration of both the first and second covenants as to how atonement is made for sins and any exceptions to the rule that God allows do not alter the actual rule. The bottom line of God's kingdom And his covenants is that perfect blood must be shed in order for sins to be forgiven. End of story. Now, the great news for us is that, and most of us already know this, but I pray that we'll hear it freshly. This is what God requires, and so this is what Christ provided. Jesus Christ as the absolute, infinitely perfect Lamb of God in every sense that you could possibly imagine of that word, infinitely perfect, He laid down the sacrifice of himself to take away our sins. And he did not just bring any old sacrifice. 
He did not bring a million bulls and goats because even that much blood wouldn't have done anything to touch our consciences. Rather, Christ offered up the sacrifice of himself. So do you see what this means? This means that Jesus is the covenant. He is the I, and I will do it, declares the Lord. This means that Jesus is the mediator between God and man, as one who is both God and man. And it means that now Jesus is the sacrifice that reconciles God and man. Jesus is the covenant, he is the mediator, he is the sacrifice. Christ is all in all. Glorious. One more thing that the author puts on the table, back to Hebrews 9.15. Namely, he puts on the table this promised eternal inheritance. Let me read the verse again. Therefore, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that for this purpose... Those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So do you see the glory of what God has done in Christ? The reason that God made Jesus to be a covenant for us, the reason he appointed Jesus to be the mediator for us, the reason God made Jesus to be the perfect sacrifice for us is so that everyone who believes might come into the fullness of the promises that God made to Abraham and Moses and Joshua and the people of Israel and David and all of the prophets, all of the people of, the, of God down through the ages. The reason Jesus is all those things is so that we can inherit the greatest inheritance known to man or even known in heaven. It was impossible under that first covenant to come into the fullness of the promises of God because it was dependent on the words, we will do it. And as I've already said, we will do it always eventuates into ain't gonna happen because we won't do it. We are unable to do it. And so what the first covenant could not do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did for us by sending his only begotten son into the world. And because Jesus has become for us the covenant and the mediator and the sacrifice, now we can enter into the fullness of the inheritance of God. The doors are wide open for those who believe into all the riches that are in Christ. So what is this eternal inheritance that we're talking about here? Well, in the interest of time, I don't want to go into too many details here, but again, if you want to see my notes, I've got some extensive notes about this but I do want to say a few things. When you look carefully at how the words promise and inheritance are used in the, in the book of Hebrews, and I did look carefully at that. I looked up every instance, and then I looked at the Old Testament passages that those texts refer to. And when you think carefully about how the author uses the word promise, how he uses the word inheritance, and where he points you to the new, in the Old Testament, you see that the focus of the promises of God is on the physical land of Israel at least on the surface of it. When you give more thought to it, when you press in a little bit deeper, especially into Hebrews 4 and Hebrews 11, you come to see that the land of Israel was really only a massive metaphor for, for the things that were to come, something that was much greater than itself. The land of Israel was only in itself another sort of promise of something that will be inherited after that land was long gone. And the people who actually inherited that land were in fact longing for something more because they knew there was something more. 
I think especially of King David. He is ruling over the entire land of Israel, the greatest extent to which ever Israel ever reigned. David is reigning over this land. And in the Psalms, he's prophesying about future things that are to come because he knows that he's not living in the fullness of the promises of God. He knows it. He knows it. And so David, along with many others, saw that the physical land was only a, a copy and shadow of heavenly things. They saw that the physical land was a prelude to a much more glorious place that God had prepared for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Indeed, the author of Hebrews tells us that these people were looking for another city whose designer and builder was God. They were looking for a city that is to come, not one that is here. They were looking for the new Jerusalem where the glory of God will replace the sun and the moon and where God will in fact be our temple. They were longing for that city in which the words of God would be fulfilled to the max. I will be your God and you will be my people. So what I'm saying is that the key to understanding the promised eternal inheritance is understanding that it is not essentially a thing or set of things that God gives to us, but the uh, promised eternal inheritance is God himself. And to be more specific, it is Christ. It is Christ. The The destiny of all who believe in God and in his great Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is to see him face to face and to eat with him and drink with him and commune with him together as a people forever and ever and ever and ever. Beloved, when we come into heaven, we will be blessed by many physical things. God will bless us with many blessings, but in that place, every one of those blessings will only cause our eyes to turn up to our Father and give him glory for who he is and give him glory for what he has provided. Jesus Christ. In him dwells all the riches of the, of the glory of God. And so he is the internal inheritance. And when we inherit him, beloved, we inherit everything. Christ is all. So to inherit Christ is to inherit all. Now please notice in verse 15 that it says that this inheritance is not for everybody, but this inheritance is for those who are called. That's a really important little phrase. I take that phrase to mean that the inheritance is for those whom God has chosen for himself. And here's why I think that. The same word for called is used in Hebrews chapter 5 when when the Bible talks about the fact that the Father appointed Jesus as a high priest. It says that Jesus did not exalt himself to that place, but the Father called him or the Father appointed him. It's the same word in, in the Greek language. And then when you go to chapter 11, it talks about Abraham. And it talks about the fact that God called Abraham or appointed Abraham to leave his family and go to the land that God would show him and and give birth to this child, Isaac, who would eventually give birth to someone who gave birth to someone who gave birth to Christ. So the line of Christ would come from this promise. And again, with Abraham, the word is not just some general thing like, like God invited Abraham and maybe he would come, maybe he wouldn't. It's not that kind of a word. God called Abraham. He decisively called, effectually called Abraham. And when God called, Abraham acted because God was totally in control. And in the same way, when we come back to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15, I think that when it says those who are called, it means those who God has chosen. 
Those who God effectually calls. So the punch of what I'm saying here is this. Just because Christ has become our covenant and our mediator and our sacrifice and our inheritance does not mean automatically that every human being on the earth is going to come into that inheritance. We have to do just one thing. We have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to open up our minds and open up our hearts and embrace him with both arms, love him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. The Bible says that if we will confess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is the great mediator between God and men, and if we will believe in our hearts that he is raised from the dead, then we will be saved. And that kind of confession is necessary for coming into the inheritance. God will give us grace to believe, but we must believe. And so I want to plead with you, friends, if any one of you here today does not know Christ, I want to plead with you, be reconciled to God. Open your heart to Jesus Christ. Let him come in and be your all in all, for he has provided everything for you. If you believe, you will receive. If you believe, you will come into the fullness of the inheritance that God has prepared for you. If you reject Christ... You must, of necessity, be left out of the inheritance because Christ is the inheritance. Accept him, you accept all. Reject him, you reject all, period. So, what does Hebrews 9, 15 through 22 teach us about the second covenant? It teaches us that Jesus is the second covenant, that he is the I and I will do it, declares the Lord. It teaches us that Jesus is the eternal mediator between God and man as one who is both God and man. It teaches us that he is the all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins so that in him all of our sins are forever taken away. And it teaches us that he is the all-satisfying inheritance of all who believe. Indeed, it teaches us that Christ is all in all. So with that, beloved, I just want to bring one point of application today, and that is this. Since Jesus Christ is all in all, let us hear and heed his call. Since Jesus Christ is all in all, let us hear and heed his call. Let us believe in him. Let us enter into a deep and growing communion with him. Let us cling to him and seek the conscience-cleansing power of Christ and know the joy of walking with him and talking with him every day of our lives. Let us put our hope in him and fix our eyes on that day when we will enter through the gates of heaven and feast with him and be with him together with some from every tribe and tongue and language and nation forever and ever and ever. Let us fix our eyes on Christ, put our hope in Christ, seek our joy in Christ. Jesus Christ is all in all, so let us hear and heed this call. Let our joy be in him because if our joy is in him, beloved, there will be no end to our joy. The moment that Christ comes to an end, our joy will come to an end. And since he never comes to an end, there will be no end to our joy in him. Let's pray. My Father, I thank you so much for the things you have revealed in this text. And I pray with all of my heart that you would give us a heart to meditate on them. I pray that we would not leave this precious word of God here on the plate, but that we would take it home and devour it. I pray that we would contemplate you as our covenant, you as our mediator, you as our all-sufficient sacrifice, you as our all-satisfying inheritance, 
And as we do, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would open our eyes to the deep things of God and the things that you have prepared for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. Oh, Father, how I love you and thank you for what you've done and how I pray that you would bring us all the more into the understanding and joy of what you have done. For the glory of Jesus' name and for our joy in him, we pray. Amen.